1: Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg.
2: And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week
1: on the show, well, as my colleague Cameron Christ wrote, the Fed just doesn't get much more hawkish than this. After raising interest rates by a quarter percentage point, policymakers are projecting the equivalent of six more such increases this year. And this comes as Russia's war with Ukraine rages on, clouding the outlook for the global economy. So what's it all mean for markets? Well, we're lucky to have two veteran Fed watchers on as guests this week to sort it all out for us. But first, Viltana, I have to point out that we are recording this podcast on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. And for guys like me, you know, of Irish descent, but really have never stepped foot in Ireland, we have a few traditions on, on St. Patrick's Day. So so let me just tell you what they are. Okay. My favorite Irish tradition is you get the whole extended Irish family together and you eat Italian food. So I, I did that oh, last night with the family. Oh, that's good. That's perfect. Yeah, that's a, that's one <laughs> like big Irish Like
2: spaghetti or something?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other thing is we tend to tell really long, uh, rambling stories that really don't have much of a point. Um, but they have a lot of metaphors. So I'm going to do that right now because I want to tell you a story about a good friend of mine who was a photographer at the Associated Press for like 30 years. Like, the guy lived the life. He went to every Olympics. He uh, photographed like every NBA championship. Anyway, now he's retired and he's on Long Beach Island and all he does all day is take pictures of birds. You know? oh, so the, yeah. the egrets and the herons and, and all sorts of... Uh, seabirds. Um, and they're beautiful. It's like kept me sane during the pandemic. But recently, he took a picture uh, over the bay. It was sunset on Barnegat Bay. And on the other side of the bay, they were doing a controlled burn of the Pinelands. So they were trying to burn down, I guess, a few acres in order to not have a, a, a bad forest fire in the Pinelands. And I thought, Vildana, this is exactly what the Fed is doing right now, a controlled burn of the markets in order to avoid a major nasty uh, forest fire later on. What do you think about that? Pretty good for at
2: for least a you warned Irish us. Metaphor. But that is a really long-winded way to get back to to the Fed.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have been more long-winded. I've been known to be more long-winded, as you know.
3: But-
2: I heard, I heard. Actually, I think it was a strategist wrote in a note a better uh, sort of analogy. The Fed is dating without the commitment.
1: Dating without the commitment. Without right. the commitment. Something that's like funny. that. Yeah. I like mine better, but that's fine. You you yeah. you, uh, you go with yours. Yours is
2: well, it's good. It's fine. Let's very see what long-winded. our guests think.
1: I I have yeah. a feel they're gonna think mine's better. Why don't
2: you bring them in? <laughs> I wanna bring in Ben Emmons. He's the managing director of global macro strategy at Medley Global. And we also have Edward Harrison, who's with Bloomberg's markets team with us with us this week. So I want to welcome you both to the podcast.
4: Great to be here. Thank you very much.
1: And uh, Ed, I want to start with you because uh, Ben's been on this show probably as many times as Rodney Dangerfield was on Johnny Carson. And uh, he gets a little bit more respect from us, but but about that many appearances. But Ed, this is your first time. So welcome to the show. I want you to just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you ended up in Bloomberg. And Ed, you'll be happy to know we allow a little bit of book talking on this show. So so tell us about your new newsletter, too.
3: Yes, actually, that's uh, that's good. And by the way, uh I vacation every summer on LBI. So I'm I'm probably partial to to your story about that because uh, (laughs) I go up to Barnegat. I have a good friend who has a house up there. And uh, so good, good story.
1: Definitely. (laughs) Beautiful part of the world, too, by the way. Jersey gets a bad rap, but that is some of the most beautiful uh, scenery over that bay, in my opinion. So uh, I
3: I came to Bloomberg through a circuitous route that started as I was a diplomat in the US foreign service, uh, I, I left to go to business school, ended up in uh, financial markets, uh, doing leverage finance and high yield in London. Uh, I subsequently decided this was the internet bubble. Why don't I get into the, the bubble? Uh, went to uh, some uh, technology companies as a M&A guy. And eventually I found my way uh, into back into the markets uh, via, uh, writing, uh, I was writing a, uh, a blog, which became a newsletter called credit write downs, which I did for 13 years before I, I came to Bloomberg. And so now I'm reanimating a newsletter called the everything risk. And sort of the, the main gist of it is, is, is that we have a, a very difficult macro situation in the developed economies that allows us to Continuously be at risk from large uh, f- financial, large economic events, and so uh, this this sort of semi crisis uh, state that we're in is a result of the preconditions. Uh, m- much of that has to do with debt and demographics. That's my uh, that's my book talking there, and I've, <laughs> I, I, I have uh, two uh, two posts that I've done thus far,
1: but many more to come. I love the name of the newsletter. For, for a paranoid worry like me, the everything risk really hits home. That's a, that's a good name.
2: And Ben, uh, to turn to you and to turn to this week, I was actually hoping you could sort of recap some of the takeaways from, from the Powell's conference uh, this week. And I wanted to ask you why you think stocks ended up rallying so strongly after, shortly after he started speaking.
4: Yeah, sure. And again, Vildana uh, and Mike, it's great to be back. I think it is need my third or fourth time on the podcast. Uh, it's it's uh, great to have this discussion. So, uh, you know, yesterday, the, you could explain it one one or the other way. So the Fed delivers this, Fed, this dot plot that looks pretty hawkish, right? All these dots are moved up a significant amount. But if you really drill into it, then you can see that they match the expectations of the market, at least for this and next year. And that's just how far the market wants to look out for policy, because whatever happens in 24, who knows, right? Like it, it could be recession. Who knows? It's very uncertain. So I think that was one catalyst that the market said, okay, this is a Fed that's willing to step on the brake, but not go much more beyond what we already have been pricing in. About right. So there was a little bit reaction 10-year yields on on that announcement. I think there was just a slight difference between 23 projection and where the market was at that moment. But by, by and large, I think that was I think the key catalyst now coming into the meeting, we had two other tailwinds behind us, and which I think was a very nicely put by your colleague, uh, John authors today. of like, basically you had three people throwing in the towel, pow, right? I guess, on inflation, like we gotta fight it. But this the, the news out of China definitely played a role uh, because that's a that's a different story but can have significant effect on markets, right? Because if if you're getting a a real support of Chinese uh, equities that spreads around the region, it's not just there, it's Hong Kong was up significant. So that did spill over, I think, to the equity markets here as we went into that meeting. And then a lot of noise, but cutting through it, Ukraine and Russia are moving slowly towards some sort of a ceasefire at some point as these conditions are negotiated. The FT was floating it. So I think that was all a combined catalyst, taking it back to the Fed. Um, now, clearly, they want to step on the brake this year in particular to get that inflation rate you know, down to 2% by next year, 2.5 to 2.7. And the market's taking credibility um, in that. They say, and that was the reaction in the long end of the U-curve. It would otherwise have sold off quite aggressively on these hawkish dots. It didn't because... As much as may analyze this restrictive policy that maybe the Fed is pursuing, Powell took that back and said, like, we're not really in the business of restrictive policy. We want to get back to neutral as practically as we can. That's how he said it. And that was too a soothing way of saying, we're taking steps. We may get to this neutral rate, maybe it's 2.5, 275, whatever it is. And that's sufficient enough to get this inflation rate over time back to 2%. I think all of that together led to this relief rally which didn't continue today, but it was a notable move yesterday. You know, uh, Ben, it's a great point
1: about uh, the the China story sort of being an underlying uh, story there. It, it, for listeners who might have missed that, I mean, I guess the big concern lately in China is that all these U.S.-listed uh, Chinese companies uh, would basically get kicked off of the exchanges for not uh, complying with the uh, auditing requirements that, that the U.S. wants. And, and China came out and said they're gonna make some concessions to allow that and and a, a few other statements to to basically try to prop up the market that nasdaq golden china golden dragon china index up 30 percent, i think on the day Big, biggest gain ever unbelievable story and i it's it's a you know i th- i think that is sort of something that that propped up sentiment you, you know despite the fed um and, and so i'm glad you brought that up but but ed let's bring you in here um any other takeaways from the Fed for you? And I, the one thing I'm I'm really curious about is Fed credibility. Um, they seem to have lost a lot of credibility regarding the notion of inflation being transitory. Uh, they basically come out and said, "Whoops, our bet. We're going to take a mulligan on that. We we got that one wrong." And some of the the rationales I, I heard for the rally after the statement was that, well, they're expressing confidence that these rate hikes won't, uh, you know, tip us into a recession. Um, but I'm wondering how much credibility they have left and and, and whether, uh, you know, that might be a mistake by some people to, to, to use that as a rationale to buy.
3: Yeah, you know, I think that what Ben was saying about the relief rally there at the end makes a lot of sense to me that uh, there was a certain relief that, Uh, The news is behind this. Uh, Stocks were oversold. Uh, So people, they bought in and now we can see how much how much uh, how many legs the relief rally has, how long this relief rally lasts. Uh, I I look at this last move as sort of a regime shift. Uh, It's a regime shift basically because we're moving from the forward guidance game uh, to actual rate cuts or rate hikes because that's the, the Fed's main policy tool. When rates are zero, they don't have any rate cuts or rate hikes that they can, they don't have any rate cuts they can use. So they have to use forward guidance. But now that we're getting off the zero lower bound, we're moving to a different regime. And so the question for the Fed was, as we move to this regime, how much uh, can, credibility can we have in terms of meeting market expectations? I think it was interesting that Ben talked about the Fed being bang on expectations uh, for what the market is looking for. They basically capitulated, because if you looked at the dot plot from December 2021 uh, uh, to the one that just came out and think about the messaging in between, this is a lot more hawkish than they were speaking uh, two weeks ago. So they basically have said we're shifting from the forward guidance game to rate hikes. And we're gonna do that by taking on the market position. We're capitulating our previous position. We're, uh, you know, waving the, the white flag, telling everyone that we got it wrong and we're gonna take on the market position. And so the reset is now for for that. And, you know, I wrote about this actually a month ago uh, Greenspan back in 2003, he was concerned about the Fed running out of bullets during that particular recession. And what he said is, is, is that he he was talking to then uh, Kansas City Fed President Thomas Honig. And he said, be as nonspecific as you know how to be. That was his <laughs> guidance to him. And yeah. Ben Bernanke got in there and he interceded. He said, you know what? No, don't do that. Ambiguity has this is his quote, exact quote. Ambiguity has its uses but mostly in non-cooperative games like poker. Monetary policy is a cooperative game. The whole point is to get financial markets on our side and for them to do some of our work for us. So that's what the Fed's doing. They're saying, you did all the work to get to the seven. We're moving to your position. And as a result, now the proof is in the pudding in terms of whether we Uh, you know, move to the position that you see. And that's the best possible outcome that you could get for a Fed that was behind the curve and losing credibility.
1: Yeah, and and to me... And it, it reminds me of when I was a kid and I'd get in trouble with my parents and they'd say, You're, we're going to ground you for the next year. And then they'd kind of soften up in, in a week or two. And so I wonder if that's part of it is kind of you know trying to influence behavior with with, uh, uh, you know, this really hawkish dot plot, whereas, you know, those dots could always move down again later in the year if, if inflation does sort of behave better than than what uh, everyone's than what it's doing now. Anyway, is that you think that's part? Is there a little bit of a psychology game going on, do you think? I
3: I just feel that they have, they're very concerned about uh, disappointing the market. Uh, They want to be as transparent as possible. They tried their their best to talk down the market from seven rate hikes. You know, people were upping the the ante from seven to eight to nine uh, consecutive rate hikes, and they weren't able to do that. And so uh, they had a decision to make. When we come out, are we going to move to this new regime of rate hikes from forward guidance with the market and and ourselves uh, not on the same page? The last time they did this in 2018, they were telling the market, look, we're going to hike uh, uh, two times. We're going to hike three times. The market didn't believe them. The market was saying we're going to hike. Two, they're going to hike two times. And they ended up hiking four. And it was that fourth hike in December of 2018 that caused the markets to just go bananas. So I think that that's what they want to avoid. They want to, you know, give it to the market on a platter, say, we're meeting your expectations. And then we can y- use forward guidance at the, the the you know, um, at the margin to sort of, you know, get people to dial up or down. But depending upon the economic circumstances at the time.
2: Ben, I want to ask you to maybe add on to that and also weigh in on the recession talk. We keep hearing about recession talk. And I wanted to ask you what you make of that idea that potentially the US could see a recession in the maybe possibly as soon as later this year or early next year. Is that likely to materialize?
4: Yeah, I hope not. But it's it's something that's has really creeped into the markets narrative increasingly. Of course, everybody's zeroed in on, on the yield on the curve. There are inversions appearing. If you actually look at the three-month, 10-year curve, which is what most of these recession models are based upon, that's still a very steep curve. But if you discount it a year from now forward, it's, it's inverted. So there is definitely expectation that we're going to hit yield curve inversion and it has been the best predictor of future recessions. So it seems like that the bond market is, is looking at, this is a recession that may happen by 2024 or about something in that nature, which may also explain why there are rate quote, quote, quote cuts sort of priced starting in that year. And by the way, on the, on the FEDs dot plot, there's one member that actually put in a rate quote, 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 cut in that plot for 2024, right? So just uh, <laughs> keep that in mind. So the recession talk is here. Powell, of course, was pushing back on that, not pushing hard, like, like aggressive, but basically dismissing the idea that no, yeah, the economy is way too strong. It's not, which was, by the way, another reason why perhaps the markets were up, like his voter confidence on the economy has always a really positive impact on markets, especially if the Fed comes out with that sort of language. Even if their models are wrong, it's an important psychological factor. So to that point, like, if we're going to continue to talk about it we know from years ago we're going to end up with talking ourselves into this recession people bear back risk is taken down savings are up and people are, are careful right and that's something that we have to monitor now look the, the, the shock that we just went through with um ukraine especially two weeks ago is enormous if you believe on 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 how global on a global scale that is taking place because 90% of all wheat exports, for example, come out of that Donbass region, as well as in, in the Odessa region. So it all comes through the ports and, and other sides of the, of Ukraine. That in itself can have a huge effect on, on global economy, right? In terms of uh, food, either shortages or, or skyrocketing food prices that is, is going to impact lower incomes. And that's here happening here too. And now it has to be met with monetary tightening. And that combination has been historically, time and time again, another predictor of recession. Um, and then lastly, I guess, is that that if you watch carefully what credit markets are doing, I've always found that a good leading indicator. So far, we haven't had the structure that we had, say, five years ago through the energy markets into the high yield market and spilling over the credit. Um, but it is to be watched there too, because, you know, the the, the trading houses in, in commodities are are really constrained in liquidity currently, cannot get any access of credit. So there's something of a spillover going on that may become bigger. Right? And as that is the case, if credit really starts to like be pulled back, and there was some talk about it that companies were challenged with, with issuing bonds in, in a certain period when the market got temporarily volatile because of Ukraine that just leads to disruption. And that could lead then to, again, paring back of activity and lead us to down to that path. So I think if I take those three, the U-curve, you know the the, the fact that food prices and, and, uh, and monetary policy tightening combined with science, some signs in credit, it points to that we're at least going to face a significant slowdown of the economy. That's for sure. I think that's almost a given now uh, we would not be be otherwise with equities here already correcting about 12 to 15%. It, it would have been less. It would have been taken back much. I think the rally is the last point yesterday was, was that relief rally on all the uncertainties that came sort of together and were taken out briefly. But it was not about, oh, wow, the economy is is, uh, is actually in a good shape. We had miscalculated this, therefore rally. So I think the market is worried that there is a risk of recession on the horizon. Yeah, it's a,
1: it's a interesting point about credit. I mean, I, I feel like the last time everyone freaked out about uh credit spreads was when oil prices were so low right. that all that junk energy debt was under pressure. Now you got sort of the opposite idea and I wonder, you know, I wonder if credit isn't maybe the signal uh it, it, as powerful of a signal as as it was uh in previous time. But I wanted to pick both of your brains about the, the notion of inflation right now. Um to me, I was never you know, quite convinced that everyone was wrong about transitory inflation. I just thought that the the length of of how long the transitory period was was off. And and but boy, the the whole paradigm has shifted now with oil doing what it's doing, uh, uh, China locking down some factories again, you know, uh, fouling up supply chains again. But, I, but I'm curious how you both are thinking about inflation. Have we sort of progressed Away from the supply chains uh, and and sort of that big rebound in demand being the main drivers of inflation, are we more now in sort of the scary uh, lingering effects of inflation with wages going up and that forcing uh, costs to go up? Uh, you know, and and that cycle sort of feeding onto itself, uh, sort of that that labor push inflation. And how are you thinking about it? Are are we in sort of as the inflation genie kind of out of the bottle now and and you can't really put it back um, regardless of whether we normalize supply chains and everything else?
3: Yeah, I think uh, we're definitely in a different uh, mode right now than we were. We're not in the so-called secular stagnation mode. Even uh, Larry Summers, who's the guy who coined that phrase, would say that. And going back to Ben's comments just from before, That's one of the reasons that you see uh, the numbers ticking up in terms of uh, the Fed model. You know, the New York Fed has a probability of U.S. recession uh, predicted by the Treasury spread, the one that Ben was talking about, the three month to the 10 year. And if you look at how that works out, we're right now at sort of 2018 levels. That's when the Fed was forced to pivot. Uh, the numbers that you were talking about back uh, during the, uh, the shale oil days were slightly lower, but they were still concerning. That was still a concerning market. Uh, but the reason that uh, it's like that is, is there's a residual belief that the Fed may not need the seven may not be enough and we, they may have to accelerate. So the, the market is positioned as it is now. With uh, a rate hike at every meeting. But potentially, if we're in a new regime, as I think that we potentially are, uh, we could move to 50 basis points at any meeting. Every meeting's live, and every meeting's live for 25 or even 50 basis points uh, from here on out. And wh- why is it that we would be in that regime? I think it has to do with changing preferences. You know, there's the deglobalization. And there's also the sense that uh, we this has gone on long enough that people, they need to stock up on certain things and they their preferences shift in terms of what they're willing to, to stock up on as a result of uh, what's happening. So that will continue the inflation uh, genie rolling. And when that happens long enough, people, uh, they say time out we need to get a, a, a pay raise. You, We need m- more money. And then you get that sort of, uh, that that spiral that you were talking about, Michael. So I think that we, we're there. And I, I believe that the, the market is, the bond market is much more an edge about that being a problem than the equity market. And that's reflected in the very low spreads that we have between, uh, say, the three month and the 10 year, not as much, but more so the two year and the 10 year or the seven year and the 10 year, which is now inverted.
1: Yeah. And for both of you, I wonder is, you know, with all these other drivers of inflation besides low interest rates, is there a chance that, you know, aggressive uh, interest rate increases won't even solve the problem? Or if they do, it's, you know, the medicine will be worse than the cure and, and we'll have a, a, a real shock
4: to growth as a result. What, what do you think about that then? Yeah, it tends to play out that way, Mike. Like you have to then become really restrictive, as they say, the wonky term, but that's kind of a way to think about it. The funds rate goes far beyond where it may be neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a bit elusive concept, but okay, let's go with it, right? That, that neutral is something like 2.4, 2.5, as the Fed's been putting out. Uh, that you've, you're too restrictive and then you really... You know, first of all, in the U.S., it will be particularly through credit. That's always how the U.S. economy gets into that recession. If you start stifling consumer credit, company credit, things really slow down fast. That's what actually happened with the shutdown two years ago, right? It was shutting down the economy. It had an amplified effect on credit. We were immediately in a recession, almost on the day that we shut down the economy. So we're now in a slow grind towards that, I think. Um, and, yeah, a point is, how many rate hikes are really necessary in order to get this inflation rate down. Now, there's one advantage that the Fed has over other central banks in that regard, and that's the dollar. Because if you were to hike rates such that you're getting a further surge in the dollar call that way, and let's take a look at 2014 episode as a a good example of that, right? When we went from 2014 to 15, up to almost 25% in the dollar or something like that, what the impact that will have on commodity prices globally that could be a, a way of how the Fed can better control inflation. It doesn't even have to say strong dollar policy, but just by nature of hiking rates, that would you know boost the dollar, particularly against G-10 currencies. Because if you think of the other example that's playing out live is in Brazil. Now the central bank there has been aggressive. Same in Chile, right? They have taken; they were much more preemptive. Their stock markets this year are up, by the way, 10, 15 percent, or something. I looked last time. And that is because their inflation rates are topping out. It's still have very elevated. But their style of monetary policy is not something that we easily would do here. Much as these dot plot was hawkish as you look like, it's nothing compared to what the Brazilian central bank is doing. You know, It's taking like 150 base point hikes. Now, there's no way that we're going to get that here. But if, it, if the Fed were to move with 150 basis points in a short order, uh, you know, by by June or so, we're up 150 base points in, in uh, with the Fed funds rate, the dollar would meaningful take off, I think, and that would be impactful. Maybe one other last point on inflation as it gets more entrenched and embedded. You know, if you follow the Michigan survey, you read the text, they, since last year, somewhere in the spring of last year, the word inflation psychology started peer a number of times. and I think they got this from surveys. This is the 70s idea, right? of people got affected by inflation and started making decisions about their purchases. either they slow it down or they start hoarding things or getting ahead of the ahead of the curve, you will, right? because they're worried about prices going up even further. So that's something to keep in mind because consumers thinking that way is obviously having an effect on on inflation long term. Because if you look at the consumer uh, projection for inflation from the conference board, since May of 2020, that one year projection has been over 6%. And that's been dead on where we ended up with inflation. You know, it's been one of the best predictors this time around this case. So watch those because I think if those do not come off, right? And that seems to be the case, both Michigan and, and Conference Board one- year expectations is not not stay very elevated and the Ukraine situation leads to further shock in energy, which is very possible because of extremely tight conditions in the physical markets, then, then that could have further effect on inflation long term. Uh, so that's something uh, to think of. And Ben,
3: I'd add on to that, that uh, on top of that, you, you know, we should think about uh, how do the interest rates affect the economy over the short term then versus the long term? Uh, it's just like with uh, inflation. There's a short-term uh, effect, but we're now going back to Michael's question. We're getting into people changing their behavior, and if uh, transitory act lasts long enough, even though it's it's suppo- the the effects are uh, are the 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 shock is transitory, the impact uh, on people's behavior is non-transitory. I would say you could see the same sort of thing in terms of when Ben talks about the Fed having to jam it on. Actually, when the Fed first hikes rates, companies want to lock in their 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 debt. You get more uh, expansion of credit. People they want to lock in their mortgages, so you get more activity in mortgages. You get higher uh, income. To the private sector because the private sector is a net receiver of interest. So actually, the initial phases are one where there's a certain impulse that is pro-cyclical. Uh, the Fed is actually adding in certain r- realms to uh, you know to stimulus, and so they really have to jam it on in order to overcome that impact. And that's when the credit starts to deteriorate. Uh, People get locked out of uh, credit markets and the whole thing starts to fall apart. And that's why it's so difficult for the the Fed to thread that needle. What we're hoping is, is that just like in the the shale oil phase, when Janet Yellen just stopped for a whole year, that the Fed can wake up, look at the signs, see the tension and then stop. And by doing so, uh, save the economy. But there's a lot of worry, including my own worry, that they won't be able to do that.
4: Yeah, maybe on that. Quick on that point, that is that. You no, know, you have to think now that the under the fate framework, right, the, the the flexible average inflation targeting framework. You know that that could be on one hand that they could do that. They could pivot faster from from as they did pre fate in 2019. They pivoted from tightening to easing. This may happen again too, right? If you get this hikes front-loaded, you get back-loaded rate cuts based on that fade framework. They switch quickly, but there is a time lag here. Like you have to, as you say, you have to get ahead of it now. They put out this projection of seven hikes for this year, matching market expectation, but you you really do have to follow through, I think, on, on trying to get this inflation rate stabilized, right? Even though it will stay higher than what it was before, and, and therefore, that's going to affect the economy. Then based on fate, you could switch to easing in the future, maybe quicker. Um, but we're, <laughs> we're not there yet. I think this is the discussion of the recession scenario, right? If the action of seven hikes gets inflation under control and the economy stays relatively stable with employment, not too much affected, then maybe you're going to continue on a rate path, hike path. If not, then fate will dictate that you should switch to easing.
3: Yeah. And I would say the Fed is is definitely not front loaded in the way that we'd want them to be. I mean, if you think about what's happened over the last two months since uh, the January meeting, the January meeting, they came out and they were basically saying our uh, summary of economic projections in December. We're, we're moving away from that and we're going to be more hawkish. Then the market exploded to the seven, eight, nine times people started talking about 50 basis points. Actually, I was one of the first people to start talking about that. And the Fed said, hang on, wait a minute. That's way too aggressive for us. And they started to dial it back. And then market expectations dialed back. uh, And it got to the point where the expectation was for 25 basis points. And Powell pretty much said that when he talked to Congress. So that's not front loaded. So the, the, the Fed talked the markets into accepting a non-front loaded policy. And to me, that means that the, the the risk is for inflation to continue to be elevated and that the Fed is going to have to jam it on uh, belatedly. And that is where the recession risk comes into play.
2: Ben, I, I want to ask you just to sort of help wrap things up a bit. I wanted to ask you what sort of factors or signs you're looking for for a bottoming for market and one particular idea i'm interested in is this idea that institutions have been doing a lot of the selling over the last couple weeks retail investors have been buying but the institutional selling is just overwhelming that retail bid if we do see institutional selling sort of exhaust itself could that sort of of help us stabilize a bit more
4: it could be i mean it's it's an it's an interesting uh, uh, the economy because partly the retail flows are driven by the institutions investing that on their behalf in stock funds, right? On the other hand, there's individuals that that you know take risk because of um, yeah, they believe that the economy is so boosted that from the pandemic it's not going to end in a recession. There's still a lot of hope. There's still a lot of I think um, buy the dip mentality perhaps out there among those investors in particular. And as long as the Fed is not yet on on the course of this balance sheet reduction, uh, which we didn't talk much about here, but if, if they, they're going to do that, they're going to have a plan, they're going to make that aware of it at a meeting, which probably is in May. But if there's a psychology about that too, right? People view the balance sheet of the Fed and the stock market, very linked to one another. If it goes up, the stock market goes up and vice versa. So that does play a bit of a role here too, because if, if that... If the Fed gets aggressive there, also as, as in you know adding on to you know, get ahead of the curve, as as Ed was explaining, then I think the bottoming is going to be challenged. You know, there's there's a lot of I think still psychology, painful psychology left from 2018 on that on that part. You know, it was clear that reserves in the system were hoarded and the situation got too tight too quick. By doing both balance sheet reduction and, and fat uh, and fed funds uh, rate hikes so so I think this bottom is a bit elusive at this moment um, in addition to that we, we do deal with a geopolitical uncertainty that that does have quite unknown outcomes uh, including what you're seeing today right these these headlines remain threatening so um, we have to see that so I, I I think it's a bit of a play of, on the one hand, hope that the buy the dip is here or people willing to do it. They, they think it's just over now, right? Let's let's do this because it's going to be just the same kind of a major rally as before. But let's for, not forget that the psychology of the Fed's balance sheet and, and, the, and, the, and the stock market are, is actually very strong. So I wonder if the retail traders at some point also dare take notice of that and say, you know what, this is maybe not so much of a buy the dip here at this moment as we go from here.
1: one more quick one uh, before we get to the crazy things. I'm always uh, thinking of our listeners who are like, listen, <laughs> just get these guys to tell me what to do with my money already. You know, so here we got an aggressive Fed, an aggressive Russia uh, lockdowns in China. I mean, what what do you do in this scenario? Is it just a go to cash wait for the dust to settle type of scenario or, or, or quickly, what would you guys do? And I know everyone's risk tolerance is different and, and uh, retirement horizon is different. So let's just pretend our listener is, oh, I don't know, a, a cranky 50 uh, something year old guy in New Jersey with three kids uh, heading to college. And he's he's not the most risk tolerant guy in the world. What, what, what would you tell him? Well, you know, I would
3: definitely say uh, you're de- you do want to ha- raise a bit of cash to be able to redeploy it. You know, there's a stealth bear market that's going on right now. You know, even though the overall market's down 10%, if you look beneath the surface, there's a lot of pain that's that's uh, been had. I'm looking at some of the stocks on my screen right now. Uh, you have Toll Brothers down 32% of uh, from the fifty-two week high, Lenars down twenty-four percent. Home Depot's down twenty-one percent. FedEx is down thirty percent. Mm. Starbucks is down thirty uh, percent. You know, so Ford is down thirty-five percent. So these are you know uh, real companies that make real products, and and you have to ask yourself how much further down can they go. Uh, it's not about buy the dip. It's about understanding the dynamics of the market and. And also uh, the real economy. At some point, these companies are going to be a buy, uh, both uh, you know from a valuation perspective, but also just from a liquidity perspective. And so, I think that you you want to hold more cash to be able to leverage into those real companies when when the uh, when the market turns.
1: S- stick with the quality and not the uh, not the innovators and disruptors of the world, I guess. Well, you know, I, I, that's a bit more of a crapshoot.
3: I have another list of companies uh, there. <laughs> uh, you know, Robin down 85 uh, percent. You have like Beyond Meat is down uh, 73 so, yeah, percent. You know, yeah. uh, th- th- I don't think that I mean, they could go to 90 percent. They could go to 100. You never know. Uh, but are they coming
1: back and how quickly are they coming back? Phil, Donna's got to eat more of those veggie burgers.
4: <laughs> Yeah, I think Mike. Uh, you know, I've I've never been a fan of holding cash. I've always been more about stay invested. You know, and as you know, when I worked at a major investment management firm, there was a strict discipline on on how much cash you should hold. I and mean, obviously, it was for liquidity reason because clients could withdraw the money. But it was also about like, yes, cash is it can be a very stabilizing factor in your portfolio if you're going through a a, a period of significant volatility. So when the invasion happened on on February 24th and you had a lot of cash from February 24th through say the first week of March, that probably would have helped you a bit with that volatility move. But then it didn't, right? We had actually, we have the best week, closing week probably coming in for the S&P since I think a number of months now. So it does tell you like you, you you, you don't want to be in, let's say, 40 percent sort of levels of cash. I think that that would be really dragging on on your long-run, you know, return that you try to achieve for retirement. But you know that you want to be optimistic with the cash that you have. That that's always a good idea. Um, you know, cash is 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 simply a volatile an asset with zero volatility. It, it cannot really be uh, otherwise valued, right? It's it doesn't have any discount factor, nothing. But it is also something about pure optimism, Like right? If you have too much cash, you're going to deploy it. This probably happened yesterday, too. There were probably people on the sidelines looking, this is maybe a moment to do this, right? And uh, so I think, you to know, think about it in that context, as opposed to using cash as an asset that people sometimes say, because it isn't unless you put that cash into a treasury bill, right? Let's say that a cash equivalent, sure. But that, as we now know, that could lose value too, especially in this scenario of a Federal Reserve high rates, the value of the T-bill will will go down. (laughs) Right, right. Good stuff,
1: guys. Good stuff. But but now it's time for the crazy stuff, I I, got to say. Vildana, get us started. What's the craziest thing you saw this week?
2: Well, something I'm really interested in is this idea that crypto could potentially be used to skirt sanctions which there's a lot of analysts out there saying it's that's it's not really that's not really the case but we had a story from one of our co- colleagues Olga Cariff she wrote about a crypto forensics firm potentially having found a wallet with millions of dollars worth of crypto in it and it might be linked to sanctioned individuals and and oligarchs and the, the company is called elliptic and and they've apparently passed the information on to the government and uh, he was telling us he was telling Bloomberg News that crypto can be used to skirt sanctions interesting. so to me that was really interesting
1: that's that's pretty good Ben it was that
4: your wallet, <laughs> <laughs> <My> wallet? <laughs> uh, and the crazy thing I thought that well you know I, I watch Jim Cramer often on at night and I, you know, he's, never he's, heard he's, of him Ben never heard yeah, of him I know but I gotta mention this one because I thought this was crazy So he is a bull, right, as we know, secular bull. I always like his enthusiasm. But what he said was this. He said, like, and to Valdana's earlier question, how the market will bottom. He said, look, everybody, I mean, everybody on the bus, on the train, in the stadium, wherever you are, just everybody has to think bearish about the market. Everybody is bearish. Everybody is selling. Then the market will bottom. That's what he would say. I thought that yeah. was crazy. Like, you know, that's one, not going to happen. Two, you know, that that, <laughs> uh, that that hurting mentality doesn't exist. So uh, that was pretty
1: crazy. All right. That was a pretty good Kramer. You don't see Ben moving the hands. It's the hands <laughs> that did it for me. I, uh, yeah. uh, I could almost see the sweat stains forming on your shirt there. <laughs> How about you, Ed? What's the craziest thing you saw this week?
3: Well, you know, uh, I was going to I was telling you, uh, Michael, I I was thinking about oil because it went up and down. But now that everyone's uh, talking about anecdotes, my anecdote is the craziest thing I saw was a movie theater company buying a a gold (laughs) uh, mining company. And the gold mining company doesn't even mine gold. (laughs) To me, that is absolutely bonkers. And, you know, I'm talking about AMC's acquisition. Yeah. And and just so you know, the gold mining company went public via a SPAC. Of course it did, of course. Uh, it if did. that's not crazy stuff, I don't know what it.
1: Yeah. And you know what th- what's interesting to me about that is it really was only a $28 million investment, but the the amount of media that AMC gets, the earned media you get for for doing that, you get all the apes back uh back on board with the stock. Maybe maybe it's worth that 28 million. I don't know. I don't know. Um all right. Your your crazy things were all great. I'll give you the winning crazy thing now, which is which is mine, of course. Uh courtesy of and it pains me that mine always wins, Vildana, but I mean I have to be objective about this and and, and be honest.
2: Yeah, isn't courtesy, that crazy how that always happens? It is always really nuts, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Courtesy <laughs> of the New York Post, which as we all know is the, the crazy things, paper of record. Elon Musk, you've heard of him, right? The world's richest man challenged Russian President Vladimir Putin to, quote, single combat amid the war in Ukraine, prompting a Kremlin official to fire back at the Tesla boss, calling him a, quote, weakling and a little devil. So Musk tweeted, I hereby challenge Vladimir Putin to single combat. Stakes are Ukraine. And the words uh, Vladimir Putin and Ukraine were written in Cyrillic letters used both in Russian and Ukrainian Uh, And then he tagged Putin's official count saying, do you agree to this fight? I'm not sure what single combat is. I guess I don't know if you bring uh, pitchforks and and, uh, long swords or something. But the question is, Ed, who are you backing in this fight?
3: That is a good question. Who do I back in single combat? You know, I'm going to I'm going to give it to uh, Elon on on this one, uh, (laughs) because he's a younger guy. I I think he has a little stealth
1: to him. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go with Elon. All right. You know, uh, Putin is that judo master, but I'm not sure how serious the competition's been when you see those videos of him uh, uh, knocking guys over. Definitely the craziest thing I saw this week. Ben Emmons, Ed Harrison, great to have you uh, both on the show. Uh, really important week, and we really appreciate uh, being able to pick your brains, and I hope uh, we can have you both back again soon. It was a delight. I really enjoyed it.
4: Thanks, Sir Mike that. So really great to be back here.
2: Thanks for joining us.
1: goes up, we'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildonaheirik is at Vildonaheirik. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Magnus Henriksen. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.